Well, good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Prez. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. And at this time, I'm going to invite all the kids out this side door with Miss Joy for a jump start. You guys will be back by the end of the service. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, we are into the book of Isaiah this morning. Welcome uh, to our church. We're going through the Old Testament, one book per week through the whole Old Testament to try to see the whole story of God's Word. Uh, if I could summarize uh, the book of Isaiah a little bit, I think I would call it uh, the phrase, tell the whole world, all right? So if you're looking for a big idea to Isaiah, it's tell the whole world. Uh, so with that in mind, let's go to uh, one passage in Isaiah that may be familiar to some of you. It's Isaiah chapter 6, where we see the call of Isaiah. So if you flip over in your Bibles, if you don't have a print Bible, there are print Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to grab one. It's on page 678 in a blue hardback Bible available on the back. But I'd love uh, everybody to have a copy of God's Word. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 6. We're just going to read the first few verses. Uh, let's start in chapter 1. Friend, hear the word of the Lord to us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Which is from Isaiah, if you didn't know that. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you please be seated? How do you know when there's a fire? You know, how do you know when there's a fire? I know there's one on the other side at Klamath Falls. But how do you know there's a fire? Well, if you're anything like me, you wake up and you do what? Right? First thing you do, you wake up, you go outside, you, and you say, mm, I wonder if I can sense the fire, right? I can smell it. Yeah, everybody knows that smell, right, when there's a fire. And then, of course, there's some of us who just see the smoke. Who here, you know, gauges the smoke by every time you look at Mount McLaughlin, right? We know when there's a fire because we can sense it, and we have these intuitive ways of sort of knowing that there's a fire somewhere off in the distance, right? We just have this sense that we can feel it, right? Uh, well, friends, I want to use that um, <laughs> as an example of... Um, Maybe a way to think about this question. How do you know when a church is on fire for the Lord? <laughs> Can you smell it? Can you sense it? Uh, is there just something in the air that's a little bit different? Uh, how do you know when a congregation is on fire? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the book of Isaiah. And Lord, we pray that we would indeed tell the whole world the good news that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come. He was pierced for our transgressions, and indeed he is coming again to make all things new. Uh, Lord, come quickly. We cannot wait for the new heavens and the new earth to rend the heavens and come down. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, uh, if you're with us, you know we're going through sort of book by book through the Old Testament, and today is probably one of the more intimidating days uh, of my year because Isaiah is an incredibly powerful book. Uh, For many of us, it may be our favorite book in the entire Old Testament. Uh, But really, to understand Isaiah, right, the theme that I want to suggest to you is just tell the whole world, right? So that's the idea that I want you to see. And, uh, you know, if you like a sermon outline, I'll give you the four parts. We're going to see how Isaiah looks at his call, his message, his hope, and his vision, right? So if you want to outline, there's my sort of rough outline, Isaiah's call, his message, his hope, and his vision about telling the whole world. Uh, But really, um, you know, studying for this series has been really daunting, right? Because I've got to read all these commentaries. But I just have to stop and tell you that I found the best commentary on the book of Isaiah. Who knows what a commentary is, right? A commentary is a book that sort of explains what's going on in the Bible, right, and what it means for us, right? So you know what the absolute best commentary on on, on the book of Isaiah is? You know what it is? You know what it is? It's the New Testament, If you want to understand what is going on in Isaiah, I encourage you to read the New Testament. Uh, Early Christians called the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. Uh, A few months ago, you may remember last year uh, during the election season, I preached on the book of first, (laughs) nobody remembers, that's beautiful, (laughs) first Peter, first Peter. And in first Peter, uh, he quotes or alludes to the book of Isaiah, First uh, Peter's maybe, maybe three pages in your Bible. It's five chapters, right? In five chapters, maybe three pages, he quotes and alludes to Isaiah 42 times. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book, uh, especially when you compare it to the prophets. Uh, he's quoted twice as much as any of the other major prophets like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel. Uh, Isaiah is quoted more than all 12 of the minor prophets combined. Right? So Isaiah looms large. And the other thing that, that, you know, if you look down at Isaiah, it, it's very big, it's very daunting. Uh, but one way to eat, maybe remember this easily is how many, how many chapters are in the book of Isaiah? Anybody know? Well, how many chapters are there, or excuse me, how many books are there in the Bible? There's 66 books in the Bible, and there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. So that's one easy way to remember it, right? Uh, The other thing to know about Isaiah, and this is maybe different than the way that you and I sometimes read books or study, and it's probably because we don't read a whole lot of like poetic writing anymore, but when we get to Isaiah, uh, we sort of lose ourselves sort of in the minutia of it, right? Uh, But the thing about Isaiah that we have to keep in mind is that when he was writing this over his lifetime, when he was writing these 66 chapters, uh, he's not necessarily writing them in chronological order, right? It doesn't just start off in the beginning and it work through chronologically, like he can go backwards, right? So the way that we read Isaiah is not sort of from start to finish thinking it's telling a story, right? Uh, There is a story within Isaiah, but that's not really how Isaiah writes. So what are you supposed to do with that? Well, um, you know, this is why I'm such a big fan of a study Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, I'd really encourage you to go out and grab one. And if you don't want to buy a study Bible, I have two on my front pew right here next to my wife that I would love to give you. I would love to give you these study Bibles. I get a lot of Bibles as a pastor for some reason. If you don't have a study Bible, I would love to give you one of those after the service. Just come talk to me. But this is why it's important to have things like a study Bible because they have notes at the bottom basically telling you what's going on in the book of Isaiah. So with all that in mind, uh, let's look at Isaiah. Uh, and this is like trying to explain Isaiah is like trying to explain the ocean. It's this big thing, right? 
It's this big thing, but how do you even start? Well, uh, let's start off with Isaiah's call. So again, this doesn't happen at the very beginning. It happens in chapter 6, but this is very instructive for us to know who is Isaiah. Well, look at Isaiah chapter 6 with me. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Right there, Isaiah is given a heavenly vision, right? A vision of the Lord, and it's uh, very much what an ancient Near Eastern person would have assumed that the most powerful person in the planet would have looked like, right? He's sitting on a throne, it's high and lifted up, and the Lord is on this throne, and what's flying all around him are sort of terrifying seraphim, right? And you may only know seraphim from that hymn, Holy, 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 cherubim and seraphim, right? You know that old song? Well, the seraphim means the burning ones right there, the fiery ones, the seraphim. And they have, you know, six wings famously. But the point is we are supposed to see God as holy, holy, holy. You see it right there in verse 2, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that word hosts right there does not mean like hosting a party. Host right there means the heavenly host, which is another way of saying angel armies, right? Or the armies of the Lord, Lord Sabaoth, his name, as the old hymn used to put it, right? This is the Lord who commands armies of angels, right? It's this intimidating figure. And what is full of his glory? The whole earth, right? His, the whole earth is full of God's glory. And of course, Isaiah is given this uh, incredible, unique experience of seeing God in, in heaven, right? This heavenly picture, right? And of course, what does he do? Well, how does he respond? We'll look at verse 5. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Uh, The thing you need to recognize about Isaiah is he is a prophet called by God. He's uniquely given this picture of who God is, but who he is as a person, we don't have a lot of details. But we do know this. When he sees a holy God, he is humbled before him. He's humbled before him. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. You know, I don't say words that are always righteous, you know. I'm, I'm not a righteous person. And then do you notice what else he says? You know, you know how deep the humility goes in Isaiah? He doesn't even think that he's better than the people that he lives around. Did you catch that? What does he say? I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm like everybody around me. We are all sinners. I wonder how many of us could say that for ourselves. You know, maybe some of us, you know, in our moments of total honesty, we deem ourselves more righteous than the people around us, more righteous than our neighbors. But is that real humility to see yourself high and lifted up and others beneath you? Well, remember, he's standing before a holy God. And what does Isaiah say? I, I'm like everybody around me. I'm like all of us. All of us are sinful. And now I'm standing before a holy God. And it's, you know, this image, right? And the seraphim, they're like fiery beings. And then they do something terrifying. They grab a big fiery coal, right? And this thing starts flying towards Isaiah. I mean, I mean, imagine being in that moment, right? Imagine if you had this vision, how terrifying that would be to actually see God in some of his holiness, to see the angelic host, and then some, one of those fiery things look at you and then pick up a ball of fire and then start flying towards you. What do you think he's going to do? You know, it's going to end up like, you know, Indiana Jones, right? You're all going to die and melt away. But what happens to Isaiah? He's humbled before the Lord, 
And the angel comes and he tells him what? Behold, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Mm. Isaiah is humble, but he knows God is his salvation. And then the Lord looks at the angelic host, right, this divine council image, and the Lord says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah gets the context, because who's supposed to go speak to the people? He is. So what does Isaiah say? Here I am, send me. You know, I love that image, right? Here I am, send me. Uh, you know, this story, right, looms large in the New Testament. And, and I, I have to think about Peter. Remember Peter who quotes uh, Isaiah 42 times? What happens when Peter gets just a glimmer of the glory of Jesus Christ? He just starts to see maybe this really is God in human form. What happens in the Gospel of Luke is uh, Jesus tells the disciples to cast their nets on the other side, and it all of a sudden miraculously is full of fish. And what does Peter do when he sees God for who he is? When he sees Jesus, what does he do? Peter falls down like Isaiah, and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And then what does Jesus say? You know what Jesus says? He says, don't be afraid. You're not going to be fishing for fish anymore. You're going to be fishing for men. You see, what happens is when we are confronted with who God is, we're reminded of our sin. But incredibly, incredibly, God wants to use you and me, you and me, for his glory. And just like he sent Isaiah on a mission, he sent Peter on a mission. Right? You see the parallel? And friends, that's exactly what Jesus does for you and me. But let's step back for a second. What was Isaiah actually called to do, right? What was Isaiah called to do? Uh, is he, does he share the same calling as you and I? Well, uh, remember, Isaiah is a prophet, right? So what is a prophet? You know, what in the world is a prophet, right? Well, uh, when you read the Old Testament, You'll get into a section that starts in Isaiah, and it goes through the end of the Old Testament called the prophetic literature, right? The prophets. And so it would be helpful for us just to step back and say, okay, Isaiah is called to be a prophet. What does that mean? Well, uh, prophets are, are marked sort of by these four things. This is pretty consistent throughout the Bible. Uh, prophets speak on behalf of God uniquely, right? Isaiah gets the heavenly picture that we don't get, right? He is uniquely called to speak on behalf of God. Right? And uniquely, his message is written down in Scripture. Right? It is a unique calling to speak on behalf of God. But the other part of the message of the prophets, which can be very intimidating for us when we read these prophetic books like Isaiah and Malachi and Habakkuk and all these, is they have a message to deliver to God's people and also to the whole world. And what they do is they call out God's people for their sin and their failings to uphold the covenant. And sometimes these are failings of sort of what we might call justice, where the poor are oppressed. And then sometimes it's the failing of worship. The people are worshiping false gods and not giving God everything they have, not loving God with their whole heart. And then, of course, sometimes the prophets are calling out the evil, wicked nations for their sins. And then, of course, prophets are probably most famous because they predict future events, but the interesting thing when you get into the Old Testament prophets is when they start talking about the future, uh, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, they talk about God's judgment, but even more, they talk about this thing that they call the day, in that day. 
the day of the Lord, when somehow justice will be paid, somehow wrongs will be atoned for, somehow justice will fall, and yet God will show his incredible forgiveness and mercy, right? So it's this, this sort of um, uh, end times day that the prophets can talk about, right? So we're into this prophetic section, and it's going to be a challenge for you and me, but we're going to be in it for quite a while, which is why I'm going on about this, right? So to help you kind of remember we're in the prophetic section, you know, we went all orange, right? We're in a new section of the Old Testament. We're going to be in orange for a while. Um, I wore my prophetic shoes, my prophet sandals, you know? Next week, I'm preaching on Jeremiah. Don't worry, I'm not going to shave my head, although he was bald. But, you know, um, Isaiah 52 does say how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, so... Probably not what he meant. But let's keep going in this prophetic thing because, you know, maybe no one's ever told you this. I'm sorry if you know this already, but I think it's helpful. Uh, when we get into the prophetic section, here are just a couple of things to know. Uh, number one, there are four major prophets in the Bible. And those four major prophets, if we could get that on the slide, the four major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Right? So if you look in the table of contents, you may notice that there are five major prophets, but don't let that trip you up because Lamentations was just written by Jeremiah. So that's why Jeremiah and Lamentations are next to each other. And they're called major because they only sing in the major key. So no, that's not it. They're called majors because they're just simply longer than the minor prophets, that's all. It's not because they have a more important message or anything. They're just called major because they're longer. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, they're just longer. And then the 12 minor prophets are just shorter. Uh, and they're also not necessarily in chronological order. I know that's confusing, but don't worry. Uh, the other thing to know about prophets is the guys who have their names as books of the Bible, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, those guys who have books named after them, they're not the only prophets in the Old Testament. Some of their prophetic writing is in the Bible, but some prophets don't have books written uh, by them or after them. So, you know, just as a quick summary, Aaron, Moses' brother, is a prophet. Aaron's sister Miriam is a prophetess. Deborah, uh, the judge, is called a prophetess. Samuel, right, who calls Saul to be the first king and who calls David to be the king, right? Samuel is a prophet. Nathan, remember the prophet who tells David that he did wrong by Bathsheba? He said, you are the man, right? Remember, calling God's people out on their sin is part of what a prophet does. And that's what Nathan does famously to King David. Elijah, Elisha are some of the famous prophets. And of course, there's a lady named Huldah, uh, who is also a prophetess you can read about in 2 Kings. So there's all kind of prophets. But then the other strange thing to keep in mind, and we'll pick this up next week in Jeremiah, is that there are also confusingly false prophets that are in operation, that are speaking on behalf of demonic forces. And the, the New Testament warns us not to listen to false teachers or false prophets, right? And so uh, that, that's just uh, sort of an overview. So what are we supposed to do with, with all of this? You know, Isaiah's call, what are we supposed to see? Uh, he's a prophet. How do I respond to that? Uh, well, I would encourage you to think about it this way. Number one, the number one way to respond to Isaiah is to listen to him, <laughs> is to listen to Isaiah. When Jesus Christ, your Savior, got up to preach for the first time in Luke, when Jesus preaches his first sermon that we know of, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up and he preaches on what? Isaiah 61. 
I have come to preach liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says, this has been fulfilled in your sight. And you know how people responded? They tried to kill him. And they didn't stop until they succeeded. If you want to understand what Jesus was doing and why Jesus has to die and why he has to come back from the dead, you've got to understand Isaiah. So listen to Isaiah. You know, we do this thing called the Ephraim Co-op where uh, this week you can read a chapter of Isaiah every morning alongside us. It's on our app. It's on the, there's a print version of it on the back. It's just a daily devotional. You can pick up in, uh, in Isaiah with us this very week. Uh, there, the Bible Project videos, there are so many resources uh, available to us to know Isaiah. But really, the, the real application that I, I want to give you for how do we respond to God's call is I want you to think about those words for just a second. When Isaiah sees God in this glorious depiction, what is Isaiah's core response? He's terrified, and then God reminds him that our God is a forgiving God, and his sin is atoned for. And God says, I have a mission. And Isaiah says what? Here I am. Send me. A friend, have you ever said those words to the Lord? Have you really? Here I am. Send me. Uh, friends, it was great. It was great seeing baptisms last week. It really was. It was beautiful. You missed out if you weren't there. Uh, but friends, just a few years ago, this church saw 32 baptisms in a year. What would it look like to get back to that place where 30 people profess faith in Jesus and got baptized here? You think I'm going to do it? You think the staff is going to do it? Friends, we are here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Friends, we all do that. We all do that. And what God wants from me, just as he wants from you, is a heart that says, here I am, send me. What's the message? What's the message, right? That's his call. That's your call. What's the message, right? Well, for Isaiah, like I said, it's pretty simple, right? Uh, he calls Israel out for her sins, right? He calls out God's people for their sins. He calls out the nations for their sins. And this is where it's really important to understand prophetic literature, to understand the prophets. Because sometimes when we get into the prophets, we'll get in these long, drawn-out sections where there are like oracles against the nations, like Isaiah 13 through 20 is nothing but pronouncements of judgment. And we think, is that all that the prophets have to say? But to understand the, the big message, right, we have to see that there are pronouncements of justice and there are always, always invitations to mercy and forgiveness. And part of what Isaiah is doing when he's calling people out on their sin is saying, there is an opportunity to repent. It doesn't have to be this way. You can repent and God will hear you and accept you, right? And of course, you know, when Isaiah is giving this message, Isaiah, probably more than any other prophet, really starts to see what God has in store for his people. And, you know, if you, if you look at the Old Testament, uh, you, it may be helpful to know sort of the basic storyline to see how Isaiah is speaking to his people, but also to us as well. So uh, if you look at this chart up on the screen, um, welcome to the inside of my brain. So this is sort of how I think. Um, 
Lord have mercy on you the day that I get a whiteboard when I'm preaching. <laughs> but this to me is um, how I understand the Old Testament. And does this say everything? No. If this is wrong, you can email me, but I'm just trying, y'all. All right? In the Old Testament, what we see is a very simple story. And I didn't even know this story until I went to like my second year in seminary. You know, I remember like someone asked me about the exile my first year in seminary, and I was like, mm, 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 my, 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 the exile. What is that? I didn't realize that the Old Testament had a basic narrative story. So it's okay if you don't know that either. Uh, but let me give it to you real fast. And like I said, you know, maybe I'm leaving some things out, but I don't really think so. It starts off, God creates this beautiful world, right? The Garden of Eden. And then very soon what happens? This world is fallen into sin. Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. And does God leave the world in this dark, lowly place? No, God immediately begins a plan to redeem this broken world. And his plan starts by loving Adam and Eve, clothing them. And in Genesis 3, he promises that one day a human would come to step on the head of the serpent and to defeat Satan, the deceiver, right? And then, of course, on the upward trajectory of the Old Testament, we start to see that God calls a man named Abraham, that he's going to use his family to bless all of the nations, that they're going to create a nation called Israel, and that will be God's special possession. And then, of course, the sort of the high point of the Old Testament is around 1,000 B.C. That's a very easy number to remember. And around 1,000 B.C., we get the high point in the Old Testament, which is God's people have escaped from slavery, they get the judges, they get the kings, and then blah, 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 the high point is these two kings named David and Solomon. But as soon as that high point is hit, those two brief kings, all of a sudden the story starts to get bad. And Rehoboam, the next king, says, I have a terrible policy plan. I'm going to raise all of your taxes and be very cruel to you. And so the kingdoms split in two. And then the kings start to become progressively worse and worse. And just as God promised early on in Deuteronomy, if they continued in sin, he would exile them, remove them from the promised land, and send them out to the nations. But because God is also gracious, he also promises them that they will return to the land. And that's exactly what happens in the Old Testament. First, the ten tribes are exiled by the Assyrians. Boo! And then about a hundred and some years later, the southern kingdom is exiled to the Babylonians. And remember Daniel? Remember Daniel in the lion's den? That happens after the exile. But then a guy named Cyrus deems that the people can go back. And that's where we get Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther the people back in the land, but they're waiting. They're waiting for something, waiting for the Messiah to come. And that's pretty much the Old Testament. Now, where do the prophets, right? Where do, where do guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, where do they appear? Well, in the next slide, you can kind of see the prophets that we think of in the Bible. They are all sort of on this downward spiral, right? Because what they start doing is God raises them up to warn God's people, hey, we are going downhill fast. And if we don't repent, we're going to get exiled. And this is very much Isaiah's message. This is very much Jeremiah's message and many of the other prophets, right? So that's sort of where we are camping out, right? Does that make any sense? Now, of course, you, know, you, can, you can remove that slide. You can step out of my brain for a second. You know, why, why, why am I going on at length about this? Is it because, like, you know, you have to be able to recount that story? You have to know all these details about people in the Bible? Uh, well, think about it this way. You should have a basic idea of what's going on in the Old Testament, but you don't need a hyper-detailed 
recollection of every detail of all of the kings in the Old Testament. Right? You don't have to tell me who Shalmaneser is and how he's different than Tiglath-Pilesar II, who's different than Cyrus. Right? When you and I get into the Old Testament, especially the prophets, we can get lost very, very, very quickly. And we're like, wait a second, is it Darius? Is it Cyrus? Who are the bad guys? I'm losing track. Uh, but friends, that's to sort of lose the forest for the trees. I think as long as you have a basic idea, you're going to be okay. Uh, think about it this way. You know, why do, we still, why do we still make high schoolers read Macbeth? Who read Macbeth when you were younger? Who understood Macbeth when you were younger, right? <laughs> why do we make high schoolers read Macbeth, right? Why, why does the Shakespeare Festival put on Macbeth? Is it because we all really want to understand Scottish royalty in the clan system? No. We read Macbeth because it's about the lust for power. And buddy, that'll preach in every generation. You know who ruined Star Wars? Who ruined Star Wars for George Lucas? His fans. Because they lost the force for the trees. You know what Star Wars is about? Don't tell me about planets and people groups and you know, whether or not The Last Jedi ruined it all. You know what it's about? It's about adventure, defeating the evil empire, courage and friendship. That's what Star Wars is about. That's why they're timeless. Right? When we get to the Bible... Don't get intimidated because you can't remember who replaced King Uzziah. What's the point? The point is God wants his people to repent and to follow him. And in the Old Testament, God enacts his promise that he will exile them, but because God is both just and merciful, he brings them back so that they would await the day for Messiah Jesus to come. If you know that, you can plow through this and you can hear it. Because the beautiful thing about Isaiah is it applies to Isaiah's lifetime, it applies to Peter's lifetime, and it applies to ours because it's timeless. The Word of God is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of body and soul, spirit and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It speaks to today. So don't get lost so much in the story. Know the basic idea. So what is it that Isaiah is supposed to send his message with? Well, that's the message, right? Repent. God has greater things in store. The exile is coming, but even better than the exile, there is one coming who will redeem all things. And in fact, our hope is not just that we'll get back to the land one day. The hope is that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That's what Isaiah is driving it. So how are we supposed to respond to this, right? Well, you know, think about it this way. Isaiah is supposed to deliver this message of judgment, but also hope. And in very much in a similar way, we are called as Christians to tell people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. It is both of those messages. Uh, but I worry sometimes that we don't actually believe the good news is good news. I really don't believe that many of us believe it's all that good of news. Because if we did, I think we would tell more people. I really do. I think if we really think about sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it, we think we would be burdening them. That it would get in the way of their life. That it would make things awkward. Uh, but friends, if that's how you feel, are you so sure you know the gospel? Because what Isaiah says is even though this world is broken... And even though the best of us, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, that's what Isaiah says, 
Even though even Isaiah sees himself as unclean, Isaiah says there's going to be something that's going to fix this world forever. And Isaiah talks about this person that's going to come. He's called the suffering servant. He's the servant of the Lord. We might know him as the Messiah. You know, and famously in Isaiah, Isaiah starts to describe what this Savior is going to do. And many of you know these words. You can start in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Just look at the cross while I read this, will you? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And yet so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Isaiah goes on in verses 53-5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have done what? We have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, how is God going to atone for the sins of the world? God is going to send his Messiah who will be pierced, who will be lifted high, who will be so marred that people won't even recognize him anymore. And is it because of his sin? No, he's the ultimate sacrificial lamb. He's pierced for us. In fact, Isaiah in chapter 9, he says, there's going to come a king and we will call him wonderful counselor, everlasting father, the prince of peace, right? Handles Messiah. But friends, this is who the Lord is. <laughs> I mean, just pause and think about that for a second. This is the holy God who created the universe. And he is so merciful and gracious and forgiving that he would send his own son, God the Son, to take the punishment that you and I deserve. Why would you refuse? What more does God have to do to show you that he is worth following? He sent his own son. He became sin. Died on the cross so that we would never have to fear death again. Uh, friends, and the beautiful thing is when Isaiah, and this is the whole change in Isaiah, right? When Isaiah says he has laid on him the iniquity of us all, he doesn't just mean the people of Israel, the Israelites. He means all of the nations. Isaiah says, it is too small a thing that I would just bring back a remnant. I will make you a light for the nations. In fact, uh, what happens in the New Testament after Jesus has died on the cross and come back from the dead, there's an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, a man who, uh, who to us would have looked like an African-American, but he wasn't American, but he was African, and he's riding around in a cart. And in Acts chapter 8, it says that he is reading a book, trying to understand it. And in Acts 8, what is he reading? He's trying to understand this very passage. You know, he, people read, read out loud back then. And then a disciple hears this man reading Isaiah, and he goes up and he says, do you understand what you are reading? And what does the Ethiopian man say? How can I unless somebody explains it to me? Is Isaiah talking about himself or another person? And what did Philip pray in that moment, you think? Here I am, send me. And Philip tells this Ethiopian eunuch, Jesus died for you. And you know what the eunuch does next? He says, what do I need to do? 
And Philip says, be baptized. And the eunuch says, like right now? And Philip says, sure. And they jump out and they get baptized. Friends, earlier this week I ran into somebody and they had a tattoo. And you know what the tattoo said? Life is suffering. Mm, my, my, my. <laughs> it's an intense tattoo to get. And I said, what does your tattoo mean? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, what do you mean You're by your tattoo? I'm asking you. What do you... <laughs> I felt like that was a pretty basic question. And they went on and talked about how life is suffering, and all of life is suffering, how much they have suffered. And everything in me, you know what I wanted to tell them? Do you think God ever suffers? Because in the good news of Jesus, God did suffer. He suffered profoundly. He was pierced for you. He suffered because he loved you. Do you know that kind of love that would die for you? But you know what I did? You know what I said instead? What do you think I said? I said nothing. I said nothing. Friends, I have to repent. And I wonder if we all have to repent. Are we sharing the gospel with a dark world that needs to know the gospel? Here I am. Send me. Is that your prayer? You better believe I'm going back to that coffee shop this week. My, my, my. Friends, Isaiah ends not just about the hope of Jesus. He ends with this beautiful depiction of a new heavens, a new earth. In fact, Isaiah, you know, 66 books in Isaiah, it ends with a picture of eternity where there, are, there is fire. There, it ends with this image that the unrighteous, those who reject God, end up in hell. And God will one day make a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, the New Testament gets the idea for those things in Isaiah. And friends, when Isaiah talks about that, uh, it's such a parallel to how the Bible itself ends. Because in Revelation, we are given this picture of a new heavens and a new earth. You know, chapter 4, when God brings heaven and earth back together. And he wipes away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Friends, it's all from Isaiah. And you know what happens at the end? Jesus declares, behold, I am making all things new. And friends, that's the vision that we really live for. It's this incredible vision of God's justice, but also his mercy. And Isaiah ends, like many of the prophets, with a jarring note because he wants to drive home for you. Do you know where you stand with God? Do you really know? You know, Jesus says it this way. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Again, Jesus quoting Isaiah. But friends, if you don't know where you stand, I really do just want to ask you, what more does God have to do to show you that he's worth loving? Um, in Isaiah 65, at the very end of the book, somebody else says, here I am, here I am. But at the end of the book, in Isaiah 65, it is not Isaiah telling God, here I am, use me. You know who is saying, here I am, here I am? It's the Lord. 
is God himself. He says, here I am. Here I am. I am speaking to a nation who does not know me. I am here. (laughs) Friends, how often do we ignore that message? Friends, how often do we close our ears? But friends, do you hear Jesus Christ saying, I stand at the door and I what? Here I am. Now, friends, let me just finish. You know, in, in Luke, there's this beautiful scene at the end of Luke, right? And Jesus has come back from the dead, and he comes upon two disciples, and they're walking down the path, and they don't recognize Jesus because he's, he's not disclosed himself to them. And Jesus comes up to these two disciples, and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they say, well, everything that just happened. You know, we thought this guy was the Messiah. We thought he was going to be awesome, and then he died, and now we don't know what to do. But some people are saying he's back from the dead. And in Luke 24, you know what Jesus does? It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, pretty sure he went to Isaiah, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in a few verses later, Jesus leaves, and they say to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? when he talked to us on the road, when he opened up to us the scriptures. Uh, Friends, what happens in a church when people's hearts burn within them? Friends, let's pray we find out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Isaiah. Uh, Lord, it is so beautiful. Uh, Lord, and it's beautiful because you show us Jesus Christ pierced for us and even better, victorious and alive, coming to bring a new heavens and a new earth. Father, would we respond to your call? Father, would we know your grace? Uh, Father, we praise you that you sent your son to be a man of sorrows, that he suffered for us, that he could wipe every tear from our eyes. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of our whole praise. Amen.